Oh my God, I cannot even explain so well in my own words what I felt. But what I can say is that at that moment, I stopped existing. I was still breathing, but I stopped living at that moment because I could not believe it. I thought that I would be given justice. I knew even before I went to prison, I knew that they can never sentence anybody innocently to death. I thought that the judges were gods, that they would see through the lies, they would deliver justice to those who deserved it. That was my perspective. I never in any way thought that a person who was innocent would be sentenced to death, would be found guilty. But when it happened to me, I realized that now anybody can go to prison. Anyone, anybody can be found guilty, irrespective of who you are. Welcome. You're listening to the inaugural series of the Women Beyond Walls podcast. I'm your host, lawyer and activist Sabrina Matani and on this podcast I have the privilege of being joined by some incredible individuals. Feminist lawyers, women with lived experience of the justice system, activists and experts all committed to seeing an end to the over-incarceration of women worldwide. On this episode, I'm in conversation with Susan Kigula. In 2002, Susan, then a young mother, was convicted of the murder of her husband and was sentenced to death. At the time, Uganda carried the mandatory death penalty for murder. Susan spent over a decade on death row in Uganda. During her time in prison, she invested in her own education and in the education of the women with her. Susan became the lead applicant in a case that led to the abolition of the mandatory death penalty in the country and was eventually released from prison in 2016. Since her release, Susan has been a prominent advocate for death penalty abolition, travelling the world to speak about her experiences on death row. Susan, it is such an honor to have you on the Women Beyond Walls podcast. Your story has inspired me for many years and I feel privileged to be able to share it with others. You're joining us from Kampala, Uganda today. I'd love to start by hearing more about you and your childhood. Where did you grow up and what did you want to be when you were a child? Thank you very much, Sabrina. I am Susan Chugla and I'm very glad to be here on the Women podcast to share my story. I grew up in a family of six. I am the second born and the first girl of my mom and my dad. And when I was growing up, I wanted to be a banker. Surprisingly, I thought that um, if I become a banker, I may earn a lot of money. I thought then that those working bank <laughs> definitely can get to uh, have lots of money because they have access to money. And so I wanted to get money to support my family, my struggling family, to support my parents and to make sure that my siblings also access good schools in the village. 
But unfortunately, um, when I grow up, I realize not everyone who works in a bank has loads of money. Yes. I love that you wanted to be a banker, but actually your heart was really to do that, to sort of support your whole family. So that community kind of service was already there when you were a very young child. We can see it already in your heart. And I understand it's very difficult to talk about and really appreciate your courage in coming on this podcast. But can you tell us about what led to your arrest and imprisonment? Um, it's not easy for me to talk about it because every time I talk about what took me to present is very painful. But um, I would briefly explain that um, I was charged uh, for the murder of my late hubby. All I would say, the father of my daughter. We had a daughter together. We were staying together then. We were a very young couple. And one night a silence came and they... Um, killed him. They used pangas to cut him and they cut me badly behind my neck. I also was rushed to hospital. I survived narrowly. And unfortunately, before I was even well, I was taken to the police and I chose of having killed the man I loved, the father of my only child. I thought it was a joke, but when I ended up on this row, that's when I realized that you're not in prison because you're wrong. You can be in prison if someone wants you there. So that's how I ended in prison, out of malice. I'm so sorry, Susan. What a tragic thing to happen to you and your family. I was wondering what your experience of the criminal justice system was like when you were going through it. Did you have a lawyer? Were you able to understand what was happening to you? By then, um, I didn't know anything to do with the law or the criminal justice system in my country. I was very, very uh, naive about the whole issue. I was given by the government, uh, but you, you can just imagine the government provides a lawyer at the beginning of the trial, a lawyer doesn't know you, you don't know him, and he doesn't take any step to do any groundwork to find out or maybe meet witnesses that may support your case. You just meet him on the day of trial, and because he's paid by the government, they're paid a little money, so they just come to do it for the sake of just doing it, not putting in their hearts. And so the lawyer was there, but the lawyer was not uh, properly equipped to handle my case then. And I myself didn't know anything to do with the law. So had I known maybe if it was like after I studied law, it would be different. And the criminal justice system to me then was very unbalanced. It was not... Um, looking at my plight because I was never given an opportunity, a chance to share my story because by then mandatory death sentences were the only thing that were given to anyone found guilty of murder or another capital offence. A mandatory death sentence meant that this was the automatic sentence for anyone who had been convicted of murder mitigating circumstances could not be taken into account by the judge who sentenced Susan. According to the Cornell Centre on the Death Penalty Worldwide, there are at least 500 women on death row. They are an invisible death row population 
whose plight and needs are often ignored. The report found that the women who are sentenced to death are often subjected to multiple forms of gender bias. So there was no opportunity for me to mitigate any circumstances of the commission of offence. So the criminal justice system then wasn't fair to me. And sadly, what you say about the criminal justice system, Susan, is something I've encountered in my work as a lawyer in so many countries. Exactly what you say, that it's not fair, that lawyers are under-resourced and it's not gender responsive. It doesn't take into account particularly some of the needs that women face. And how did you feel when you heard that you were sentenced to death? Oh my God, I cannot even explain so well in my own words what I felt. But what I can say is that at that moment, I stopped existing. I was still breathing, but I stopped living at that moment because I could not believe it. I thought that I would be given justice. I knew even before I went to prison, I knew that they can never sentence anybody innocently to death. I thought that the judges were gods, that they would see through the lies, they would deliver justice to those who deserved it. That was my perspective. I never in any way thought that a person who was innocent would be sentenced to death, would be found guilty. But when it happened to me, I realized that now anybody can go to prison. Anyone, anybody can be found guilty, irrespective of who you are. It was very terrible. It was very devastating. It was a horror to me, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, understandably, your faith in this justice system was crumbled right before your eyes. And I think you're so right. So many of us just trust instinctively that the justice system is going to be fair until we might experience it or a family member might experience it themselves. There are around 13 prisons in Uganda that are exclusively for women. You were detained in Lazura prison, the biggest women's prison. What were the conditions in prison like? By 2000, the conditions in prisons were not good. The human rights were not highly respected or observed. The environment itself was not conducive. We had so many things that were lacking. The hygiene wasn't very good. The reception from the waters wasn't that good then, which has changed over time. Right now, it is just uh, the opposite of what I made by that time. We were sleeping in very small cubicles. We were using buckets for toilets. We were not having good meals. Our visitors were limited. Time you're talking to the visitors was limited. It was very hard and very harsh. Thank you so much, Susan, for giving us that insight into the very challenging time you spent in prison. Many of our listeners will never have been into a prison before. And so you're helping them to understand a little bit about what you experienced and went through. And I'm really glad to hear that in Uganda, things are slowly getting better and improving in prisons. And I know that you yourself have been a big <laughs> factor in that. And we'll get onto that later. But your daughter was around one years old when you were imprisoned. 
Were you able to see her? And what was your experience of motherhood while being incarcerated? Yeah, my daughter was uh, one year old and I had left her with my parents. My parents were still living. Unfortunately, by the time I came out of prison, I came when they were all dead. But by then, before they died, they helped me to take care of my child, especially my mother. I would not see her very often. I would say maybe in a year, maybe once in a year. Because uh, the distance from where my mom and my daughter were to where I was in prison was a bigger difference. And my mom didn't have transportation to always bring my daughter to me. But of course, I participated in her journey, in her growth. Motherhood was not something that I had expected to experience when in prison, but I was given an opportunity of making crafts and I would sell those crafts to visitors who could come in to see prisoners. And the officer in charge would keep that money because we're not allowed to have money on us. And so wherever my mom would come to visit me, even if it was once in a year, I would give her that money that I had saved to go and pay school fees for my daughter. So that's how I participated in her life as a mother. And at times I would send an officer to buy for me a small beautiful dress and wherever she could come, I would tell her, I love you so much, my daughter, and I dress her into that little dress, however cheap it was, but I loved it and I treasured it so much. Oh, Susan, that's such a heartwarming story that, you know, even with what little you had and even in such challenging circumstances, you were able to do everything you could to support your daughter and love her. And that's so important, I guess, that people sometimes think that motherhood stops when you're in prison, but of course it doesn't. And we know that so much of what causes mental health issues for women in prison is that anxiety of being separated from their children and worrying about their children. A recent global study found that over 19,000 children are imprisoned with a parent worldwide, mostly with their mothers. Did many women in Uganda have children in prison with them? And what was the impact on those children? Yeah, um, definitely many women come with children in prison and others come in when they are very heavily pregnant and they give birth from prison. So the population of children in prison always grows every other day. And because it is the mother that is imprisoned, the father cannot take up that responsibility of taking care of the child outside prison. So the mother is definitely attached to the child and has nothing to do except to stay with the child in prison. So there were very many women with their children in prison and also these children, they don't have where to play from. Like they grew up in an adult environment where they are forbidden from, don't go out because the mother is supposed to be in, you're supposed to be inside with the child. So they don't have that childhood growing environment where they can play, where they can run up and down. They, they don't experience that sweet love from their moms because their moms already frustrated, already angry and bitter and crying all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, children are often such an afterthought in the prison system. And really, I read one report that said they're invisible victims. And I thought that was really accurate because they suffer so much 
they're not catered for and not provided for. Turning a bit now to understand the backgrounds of women who are in prison in Uganda, in 2015, Penal Reform International and the Foundation for Human Rights Initiative conducted research into the backgrounds of women in prison in Uganda. They interviewed 10% of the total female prison population. Poverty and domestic violence were some of the key factors behind women's incarceration. 76% of women surveyed identified themselves as poor or very poor, and 37% of women said they had experienced domestic violence. I then spoke to Susan about some of the stories of women who were in prison with her. She reflected on the fact that many of the women who were in prison had suffered domestic violence. I then asked her if women on death row were treated differently from other incarcerated women. By the time I was seduced to death, there were about 25 women on death row, but the number grew to 50 within a period of three years, were 50 plus. And uh, before I wasn't treated special, I wasn't given any special treatment before until when when I became a leader, uh, when I became there, I was given some few privileges, like I was allowed to have a mosquito net. That was a privilege. <laughs> yes. Not, not essential, Susan, but a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it was a privilege as a leader of having a mosquito net because there were so many mosquitoes in the prison and were not allowed to have mosquito nets. So were always in and out of the hospital with malaria. <laughs> so that was the privilege that I was given to sleep in a hospital net at least. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you say you're a leader and it's so clear to speaking to you. Of course, you are a leader. And one of the things you did while being a prison leader is you set up a choir and I remember buying a CD of your wonderful music and playing it in talks that I would do on the death penalty. And it was such a powerful advocacy tool for people to hear the views from women on death rows through song. What do you consider as the role of music and art in prison? Um, music, music and art are very powerful tools, healing tools to the soul. It helped me so much to heal, to heal. And wherever I could compose those songs, I would find healing because I would be expressing what I was feeling in my heart. And uh, it helped so much in the rehabilitation of other women. It rehabilitates the person because the person who comes to sing or who enjoys the music also listens to the message in the music and changes their way of thinking. Uh, music relaxes one's mind and soul, and also it enhances creativity and also motivates talent. Yeah. Well, I hope many of the listeners to this podcast will go and listen to your prison choir. We'll share the link on the website because your music is so wonderful and inspiring. But you not only set up a prison choir, but you also set up a prison school. What led you to do this? 
by that time, I was a present day in 2000. I had only done my ordinary level education, that is um, Form 4. And when I was uh, sentenced, I was still very young. And I was like, okay, now I'm here. What next? I never believed in what the judge had told me. I refused to take it in. I said I will not die. And I was like, okay, I will not die. But before I regain my freedom, what am I going to do here? I need to enhance my education and I need to come out of this place a better person. I knew one time I to come out, that kept on ringing in my heart and my head. And then I was like, okay. And I also realized that most of the women uh, did not go to school. I was doing translation for them or race wherever I could get visitors coming in or wherever there was any English speaking person coming in, I would be the one to translate. And it was kind of bothering me to see that most of the women never understood English and never went to school, did not even how to read or write their names. And I said, let me empower these women by starting a school to teach them. That's why I started a school to support the ladies to get education and improve their lives. Yeah. That's incredible, Susan. And I love the saying that when you educate a woman, you're educating a generation. And I like to think you weren't just educating all these women in prison with you, but a whole generation to come in Uganda. Because of course, when women are released, they'll also pass on what they've learned to their children. Sure. Susan was not only a teacher, but also ended up being a student studying law in prison via distance learning with the University of London. Alexander McLean of African Prisons Project had been encouraging Susan to study law for a while, but at first she wasn't keen. I told him what law for justice was an injustice to me and so McLean, please get lost. If you want to sponsor me, study, find me another course. He insisted and told me, Susan, you know what? You're a leader and I know if you're able to do what you're doing without any legal knowledge, I imagine if I equip you with that legal knowledge, you're going to do much more. Think about also the other people you're going to support. You're already supporting them now, and I know you're going to support them more. Susan studied hard and was one of the highest achieving students on her course. Not everyone in the prison was supportive, and studying was not always easy. It was something foreign here in Uganda for a woman to study law from prison behind bars on death row. Oh my God, they did not understand me at all. <laughs> because most of the time they would ask me, are you crazy? You're going to die with your law degree. Why are you wasting your time? And others would ask me, why are you going to practice your law here in prison? Oh my goodness. And so even the women would disturb and bother me wherever I could be doing my reading. I didn't have a class, I was studying under a tree come rain come shine I had to concentrate because when you go back to the rooms you can't stop them from talking from crying from praying it was very challenging but with determination hard work and setting a goal I thank God I went through and graduated 
That's amazing, Susan. And I think your story is so especially inspiring as you're an agent of change within the prison. You didn't let the tragic circumstances limit you and you defy so many stereotypes about incarcerated women who are either demonized or they're seen as helpless and without agency, but you are absolutely this incredible agent of change. Thank you. Susan played an important role in changing the law in Uganda and was part of a landmark legal case which changed the lives of hundreds of people. In 2003, following successful challenges to the death penalty in the Caribbean, the Foundation for Human Rights Initiative, Ugandan Lawyers and the Death Penalty Project began to prepare a constitutional challenge to the mandatory death penalty in Uganda. Susan was the lead applicant in this case, which was filed on behalf of everybody on death row in Uganda at the time. 417 people. The challenge was successful. In 2005, the Constitutional Court struck down the mandatory death penalty as a violation of fundamental human rights and ordered the government to hold resentencing hearings for everyone on death row. The government appealed the decision, but it was confirmed by the Supreme Court in 2009. By the time of the Supreme Court judgment, the numbers of people on death row had grown and it was estimated that there are around 900 people who would benefit from the decision. This case not only created change for Uganda, but had a ripple effect across other countries. This case was a huge inspiration for me at the time. Susan was finally freed in 2016 with her own sentence reduced. I asked her how she felt when she was finally released. Oh my goodness, seeing the outside after so many years in prison, I felt so happy, so very excited. I felt so proud of myself. I felt incredibly blessed and fevered because I always dreamt of that day. I remember when I was being discharged, it was raining heavily. For the first time, I noticed I in charge came with an umbrella and she held it on top of me. So that doesn't rain on me. When I was in prison and it was raining, you're standing, it rains on you when you're under the tree and looking at this prison officer holding an umbrella for the rain not to rain on you. It was an act of honor for me. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry, Susan. Because it's, of course, you know, it's it's so painful to talk about what happened and it doesn't go away. And I'm so grateful that you're so brave to share your, your really important and vital story with us and so many other people across the world. In particular, you really encourage and inspire me with your ability just to move forward and be positive. What do you think needs to change about the way Uganda treats women impacted by the criminal justice system? I, I don't think this is only to do with Uganda, but uh, to do with most of the criminal justice systems in the world. Women should be given an opportunity to take care of their children. Women should be given an opportunity to be had. I think all legislators should also adopt laws that handle women in particular, because women as mothers play a very important role in society in shaping up of 
a human person in society. So when they are brought before the justice system or the criminal justice system, they should be looked at as people who don't have criminal minds, as people who can easily change who, if given an opportunity, a chance. So they should not be aggressively sentenced. Yes. Absolutely, Susan. I fully agree. And research has shown how devastating prison can be for women and their children and that we really need to invest in community solutions and addressing the root causes of imprisonment rather than, as you said, aggressively sentencing women and causing so much more harm. What would be your biggest hope for change, Susan? (laughs) My biggest hope for change. I am hoping that one day would have a world that is free of a death sentence. I hope that one day we'll have a world that doesn't imprison women and children. I hope that one day we'll have a world that is full of forgiveness and acceptance. And I also hope that everyone knows that not everyone who is in prison is a criminal. Yourself out there in the world you should know that you're not in prison, not because you're too good, not because maybe no one wants you there yet. I hope that we'll stop to judge people who are in prison and give them another chance, a chance to live, a chance to come to terms with what they did. We'll give them an opportunity to reconcile with those they offended. Thank you, Susan. That's an incredible hope and definitely one that I share and I know many of us at Women Beyond Walls share. And I really hope that this podcast is a small part in getting people to change their minds and views, approaches about women in prison and getting involved because I believe that everyone has a role to play in ending the incarceration of women. And you have shown us so powerfully how one individual can make an incredible change, not just only in her country, but worldwide. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to share my story once again. It was lovely having you with me here. Thank you very much to Sabrina. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Beyond Walls. As well as being a global advocate against the death penalty, Susan has founded the organization Sunny African Children that supports children of incarcerated people in Uganda. To find out more about some of the amazing work Susan is now doing and how to support, please visit our website at womenbeyondwalls.org to find out more. This episode is edited by Human Group Media, a podcast company for social change and impact. To learn more about their work, please visit humangroupmedia.com. On this episode, we are thankful for the assistance of Laura Cook as producer, Victoria Lynn as communications fellow, and to Lady Unchained and Miri for the use of their song, which accompanies all podcast episodes in the series. If you love the song as much as we do, visit Unchained Poetry's website, a platform for artists with experience of the criminal justice system. If you enjoyed this episode of Women Beyond Walls, we encourage you to pass it on and share with friends. And if you have time, we would really appreciate your reviews on your podcast platform. 